You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. We've been in the book of Acts, and it's been interesting to kind of go through this book together because it is an an ancient book. It's about 2,000 years old, and it talks about the church, and the first part talks about the church, but then we start to see this, starts to talk and focus a lot on the life of Paul. And uh, so we're looking at the life of Paul, and we recognize that it kind of shifts from the attention being on the church to the attention being on the man. And so, you know, as we've been kind of going through this series, Life-Changing Church, we recognize that it stopped kind of talking about the church so much and started talking about the missionary that is the Apostle Paul. So what can we learn as we look at the last few chapters of Acts, as we look at the life of Paul, uh, I think that there are some things that we can learn from that. And I want to talk to you about a four-part series uh, called Troubles, Trials, and Your Testimony. Now, we all know that at times we have trouble. Some of us get ourselves into trouble, and there are the times where just trouble seems to come to us. But how do we use what we've been through and the things that we experience and the difficulties and challenges that we go through, how do we use the, the difficulties that we face to be able to still give God glory in the midst of it? And that's incredibly important for us because some of us don't weather trouble well. We don't really look that good. We kind of look like the porch after winter, you know, after you do your spring cleaning. You look at the fences, you look at the porch, look at your patio, and you go, this is not good. You need to sweep it. You need to clean it. You need to make it look better because it just has been through a lot in those uh, four to six months that is winter. And so how do we weather it well so that at the end of it, we don't look like we've been through the absolute worst of life, but that somehow in the midst of it, we still find a way to be able to direct people's attention towards God. And I think that's something we can all relate to. I think that's something we can all do. And so I kind of want to talk to you about that today. Now, uh, we've been looking at the Apostle Paul's life, and if you recall, last time I was with you, last time we gathered together in the church We were talking about the role of prophecy and how Paul was preparing to go to Jerusalem because he wanted to get there in time for the Feast of Pentecost, one of three important feasts that the Jews participated in. And along the way, people were prophesying to him, don't go, don't go, don't go, because trouble awaits you in Jerusalem. And how we talked about that, even though prophecy at times serves as a warning, and sometimes we can misinterpret the prophecy to mean something that it doesn't. So in Paul's case, he knew that he was going to Jerusalem. He knew that he was going to get into trouble. He knew he was going to be arrested. So the prophecies that he was hearing about that were confirmation to him. To everybody else who was listening to it, they were saying, see, Paul, that means you shouldn't go. So Paul does head to Jerusalem. He heads there, and he arrives about two days before the, the Feast of Pentecost. And he's getting ready to worship with the rest of the people. And one of the things that he does is he, he appears before the council in Jerusalem. Now, in case you're wondering what this is all about, one of the things we need to remember is that Paul and the apostles, they had set up accountability. Okay? Even though he was an apostle, even though Peter was an apostle, there was a council in Jerusalem, a group of elders that were overseeing the church and the workings of the church, and that any time they did something, they would come back to Jerusalem and they would meet with the council and they would talk with them about what they've done and what their plans are and to kind of report what they have done. And so Paul does this. Paul returns to Jerusalem. The very first thing that he does is he goes to the council in Jerusalem 
who is incidentally run by James, the brother of Jesus. So uh, Jesus had different brothers. He had James and Jude. And so James is actually appointed the head of the Jerusalem church and the head of the Jerusalem council. So when he appears, uh, Paul appears in Jerusalem, the first thing he does is he goes and he speaks to the, uh, the Jerusalem council. He meets with James and the elders. And we begin to see something very interesting here. We see that there's something that happens, and we realize fairly quickly as we get into chapters 21 and 22 of Acts. And the first thing is that Paul's ministry was misunderstood. How many have ever been misunderstood before? Like you can't get, you can't do words. Like you can't English for whatever reason. And no matter what you say, somehow people misconstrue you, misunderstand you. They don't understand your tone. They don't understand kind of the way you say things, your mannerisms. And there are times where people just misunderstand what you're getting at. Yeah, there are times where that's our fault. I'll be honest with you. There are times where that's really on us because we haven't learned to communicate better. And it's always incumbent upon us to communicate better. But sometimes you can be doing the right thing and people misunderstand your intent, misunderstand what you're about, and, and, and kind of be negative towards you because they don't understand what you're doing. So we see two things as we look at these chapters. First one is that people must, the uh, church misunderstood Paul's ministry. And then secondly, the people misunderstood and misinterpreted uh, Paul and what he was about. So we're dealing with two different sets of people. The first set of people are, are Christians and believers. And the second set of people are people that are Jewish, but they don't believe in Christ. And so we're going to look at that together. Uh, take a look in uh, Acts chapter 21. You can turn there in your Bibles with me. It's always good to, to follow along. It's always good to be in practice of not how to use a Bible. And if you've ever been handed a Bible before and you never knew what a Bible was about, you would think that it was kind of like, I read this like I would read a novel. But like easily as you get into it, when you recognize, when you start flipping through the first few pages of Genesis and you start making your way through Exodus and into Numbers, you recognize, I am completely lost. I have no idea where this is going. Especially if you've never read the Bible before and you've never been in the Scriptures before. If you try and treat it like reading like a book, you're going to get lost. But if you understand kind of like how things are going, what God's intent and purpose was through the Scriptures— like, once you do that, then the Old Testament makes a lot more sense, okay? So start in the New Testament. Start in Matthew. Start uh, working your way from there to the end of uh, the New Testament. And then go back and read the Old Testament. But as we're looking at it here, Paul is misunderstood. And so as we get into the Word today, we'll find ourselves in the book of Acts, which is in the New Testament. Uh, and if you have an app, it's super easy to find. But I will say that there's something to be said for still pulling out a Bible and finding your way around in it, especially if you lose the Internet. God forbid you should lose the Internet. Or you lose power. It's good to still have a, an old-fashioned analog Bible you can flip through and be able to read. Acts chapter 21, looking at verses 17 through 22, we see that the church misunderstands Paul's ministry. Verse 17, and it says this. It says, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, 
You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and are as zealous for the law. Now, if you don't know what the word myriad means, I'll break it down to you in very specific terms. It's a very ancient word that means lots of people. Okay, lots. Okay, so myriads means lots. Some would say even thousands. So there are thousands of Jews who have, uh, who have believed and are zealous for the law, and they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among you to forsake, uh, among the Gentiles, to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Now what's happening here? The church was rejoicing at what Paul was doing, but they questioned and misunderstood some of his methods. They rejoiced at what God was doing, but they questioned and misunderstood some of his methods. Some had overheard that Paul was teaching Jews to ignore the customs of Moses, the teachings of his ancestors, to avoid circumcision and the feasts and the traditions of the law and they are saying, you know, there are some people in the church, there are believing Jews that are Christians now who are still very zealous for the Old Testament law and, and the practice of Judaism. And they're, they're very concerned, Paul. They're very concerned that you are uh, undermining your heritage, that you're teaching something different than what we were all raised with. And you're telling people something different than what we've been telling them. But if you actually look at Paul's writings and you look at his life, he never tells Jewish people to do that. It's a misrepresentation of something he said. Someone took something that they overheard him say and say, well, he's saying that to everybody. But Paul never said to Jews, don't practice the law of Moses. Don't observe the feasts. Don't circumcise your children. Don't teach them the law. He never said that. To Gentiles he did. Now, Gentiles are non-Jewish people. These are people that as Paul traveled around Asia Minor and Greece, he started preaching and establishing churches there, and they didn't have the benefit and the background of the Jewish traditions. And so he says to them, it's not for you to follow Jewish traditions and then become a Christian. Because in Judaism, if you wanted to convert from being pagan to a Jew and to follow the Jewish customs, you had to first choose to follow the traditions of the Old Testament law. You had to participate in circumcision. You had to observe the feast. You had to uh, follow certain dietary regulations in order to become a Jew. So there are many Jewish Christians that are saying, well, in order to be a Christian, these Gentiles must first become a Jew, and then after they become a Jew, then they become, become a Christian. But they have to make sure they observe all the traditions of the Jewish people. And Paul said, that's not necessary. That the Old Testament covenant, the old, the old law of Moses, was a picture of what was to come. It wasn't meant to be the uh, standard for everything, but rather as a picture of what was to come. It was a picture of the coming of Christ. The, the law of Moses, the Old Testament, showed people that they were sinful in need of a Savior. But the fulfillment of salvation comes in Jesus Christ. So if the Gentile already hears the preaching of the word, they understand that they are sinful and they need to come to Jesus to find salvation, they don't need to go through the extra steps in order to become Jewish then Christian. Instead, they can just be Christians. 
And if anybody questioned Paul's devotion to the law, I want you to look at it this way. Where is Paul right now? Paul is in Jerusalem. Why is Paul in Jerusalem? Because Paul wanted to be there in time for the Feast of Pentecost. Now, the Feast of Pentecost was a harvest festival. It was a feast in which they would celebrate the bringing in of the harvest from the field. It also has a picture, too, because on the day of Pentecost, we see that the Holy Spirit is poured out. And on a harvest festival, the Holy Spirit's poured out in such a way so that people can go out and to bring people into the kingdom of God. God is about the harvest. So Paul is there, and he says, listen, I'm here for the feast. One of three feasts that were required of all Jewish men to to attend. There was a feast of Pentecost, there was a feast of Passover, and the feast of Tabernacles. Every Jew would travel to Jerusalem three times a year to do this. And here Paul is. Paul uh, often participated in certain rites and rituals that were, uh, you know, lined up with the Jewish tradition. The rites of purification. Sometimes he would take a Nazarite vow. There would be things that he would choose to do. So Paul's Jewishness was not in question here. All they had to do is look at the man to understand what he was really about. Misunderstanding comes when people don't understand what you are doing or why you are doing it. You ever been trying to do something and it's just easier just not to explain it to people? You just do it. Because if you have to explain it to people, it takes time out of your day. It takes time out of your schedule. And you're just like, I just don't have time to explain it to you. I just do it. But when people watch you, they go, well, why are you doing it that way? And they question your methodology. They see the results, but they're saying, well, why does he have to do it that way? And there are many times where people don't understand where you're coming from or what you're doing. When they don't know, people fill in the blanks with their own words when they don't like what you're doing. They often assume your intent and your reasoning, not really knowing much about you. It's easy to play armchair quarterback and assume that you know what the person is doing or should be doing. Do you know what it means to be an armchair quarterback? It means on Sundays when you watch the football season, when you watch the NFL, you immediately question the coach's decision of why he ran that play at that particular moment. Or that you, you know, question the throw of the quarterback and you say, well, why is the quarterback, why did he throw it to that person? Didn't he see that there's a person open downfield as though we're not the one, as though we're the ones having 300-pound linemen chasing us and having to make a split-second decision, right? So an armchair quarterback says, well, he shouldn't have done it that way, he should have done it this way. And Paul is doing a great work. The council of Jerusalem is giving giving an attaboy. They're clapping for him. They're saying, you know what, you did great. We are so excited. We give glory to God for what God's doing through the Gentiles. But there are some people that have a problem with you. The people that have heard some rumors about you. Just the people that are being critical of kind of what you're doing. And they're not sure if you're, you're doing the right thing. So you really need to, to answer to them and talk to them. It's easy to be critical of someone from the cheap seats. Can I just tell you that? It's easy to sit in the cheap seats and throw peanuts at the people that are actually on the field doing the work and doing the job. But if you've ever had to work a hard job, if you ever had to work the field, or if you had to, ever had to work construction, or if you ever had to do different things, one of the worst things in the world is to have somebody standing right next to you asking you why you're doing everything you're, you're doing right then and there. They're not your apprentice. They don't work for you. They're just a homeowner that's nosy. Or there's someone that's trying to help, but they're not really helping, if you understand what I'm saying, right? So that people don't quite understand. So it's easy to be critical when you don't understand what's going on. It's easy to question the person that's on the field. 
Teddy Roosevelt, President of the United States, uh, had this uh, famous speech that he's known for called The Man in the Arena. And I want to read it to you because it really does make sense because we often experience critics. And critics either just don't like us, they question what we do, they misunderstand what we're doing and why we're doing it. But as far as Teddy Roosevelt was concerned, he had a perspective when it came to dealing with people that could be critical. He says this, quote, It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows the end, the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory or defeat. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying it's not the critic who counts, but it's the person who is in the arena doing the work. There will always be people who misunderstand and misinterpret your intent, especially as Christians, especially in today's culture. They will say things about you that are completely and patently untrue. And we can either choose to react to those things or we can respond to those things. Can I encourage you to do the second part, not to react? Because when we react, we get all worked up, we get upset, we get angry. But when we thoughtfully respond, we can actually speak to the situation and make sense. But this is the way it is with people. People would rather complain than do something about the problem. How many people on Facebook have all the solutions about what's wrong with the town, what's wrong with the roads, what's wrong with our government, what's wrong with the vaccination procedure, what's wrong with everything else that's going on there. Everybody has the answer. How many are doing something about it? Nobody. Because it's easier to criticize than to do. Putting yourself out there for the Lord is never easy. When you do so, you are setting yourself up to be criticized. If you have a heart to do good things for the Lord, whether it be a missionary or to be a pastor, or to do the work to help others, when you experience success, people will resent the fact that you're successful. But they aren't willing to put the work to see it done. So there are always times that people are going to misunderstand your intent. Well, he's doing it because he just likes money. He's doing it because he loves a crowd. She's doing it because of this or the other thing, or she has some unmet need in her life, and that's how she has to do it. How dare we that we would question the intent of people and immediately judge people whether they do what they do it for and who they do it for. How about we just let them work and we work too and let God sort it all out at the end? Amen? There are certainly more than enough critics in the world. But how many people are actually doing something with the life that they've been given? When you serve the Lord, there will always be critics. Why? Because the enemy puts people up to being critical of you. So that you'll get discouraged, so that you'll get frustrated, so that you'll want to give up. He, that's how he works. 
He always intends to do that. So anytime you try and, I'm going to quit smoking this time, and you stumble, there's the voice of criticism in your ear. Anytime you try and serve the Lord and follow the Lord and get your life straightened out, and you stumble along the way, you'll hear the voice of criticism in your ear. That's the enemy of your soul at work. That's the demons of hell speaking to you. Those are people, those are your own insecurities speaking to you about the past and how you'll never be anything else. But you know what? The critic doesn't matter. The one that matters is the one that puts in the work. Because God still wants to do something in and through you. As you serve the Lord, you will be criticized. But remember who you're doing it for. Can I just challenge you with that today? Whenever you do something for God, can I, and, and when you do something for people, remember who you're doing it for. Some people say, well, you could have done that better. I heard how you messed up on that song, the third to the last song before you did it. I should be worship leader, or you should get a real worship leader in here sometime. You don't understand what I'm saying? Is that there will always be someone who is critical of what you're doing, even though they won't do anything themselves. And when we hear criticism, and by the way, I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to anyone. Please understand that, that there are times where criticism is merited and constructive criticism and things that have a shred of truth to them. And you should weigh those things out carefully. But there are times where you have to remember who you're doing it for. I'm not doing it for the critics. I'm doing it for the people that need help. I'm not doing it for the critics. I'm doing it for the Lord because this is what God has put on my heart to do. I really want to do this. I want to serve the Lord. I want to bless him. I want to be in line with his plan and purpose for my life. And there will always be people chattering in the background about what you did and how you did it and should you have done it that way. But you have to just push that out and remember who you're doing it for. There will always be people who are critical. Just like Noah building the ark. And people go, look at this idiot building an ark until the rains came. Or Joshua marching around Jericho with the armies of Israel and people throwing stuff uh, down on him from the uh, walls above. Look at this idiot circling Jericho. What does he think he's going to do here? And then God brings down the walls of Jericho and brings a great victory in Jericho. There will always be people that they don't understand the beginning. They'll only see the results at the end. My friend, Pastor Mario, Marios Ellenis, once said, why would I take battle advice from those who are even afraid to go into battle? King Saul gave David his armor and says, this is what you should do. Meanwhile, King Saul was unwilling to face Goliath himself. Listen, criticism hurts, but remember who you're doing it for and why you're doing it. At the end of the day, The believer who is called to do great things for God must remember that everything that he does is for an audience of one. This doesn't mean that there won't be times where you have to explain yourself to people. We see that Paul's ministry was misunderstood and misinterpreted by people in Jerusalem as well. Now keep in mind, he's there for the Feast of Pentecost. It's a harvest feast. Thousands of Jews are making his pilgrimage there uh, every year. And he's actually recognized from some, by some Jews that were part of the province of Asia when he traveled around preaching and teaching. He preaches and teaches in Ephesus, and there were some people that didn't like what he had to say. Like Paul would always start in the synagogues. He'd always start there, and he would share Jesus in the synagogues. And some people believed, and other people were saying, like, I don't like what you're saying. Get out of here, and they'd throw him out of the synagogue. But some people weren't just simply content to see Paul go. Some followed him around, stirring up trouble wherever he went. So that whatever city he went to, there would be riots. And there would be 
struggles and there would be discord that would be taking place there because a few people would stir up the rest of the people and say, well, Paul's trying to do this or trying to do that, trying to get him arrested, trying to get him imprisoned. Imagine if you had a fan following like that. We sometimes think that fame is a great thing because people will follow us and listen to us. But the thing about having a following is that sometimes there's people that follow you that you don't want. And they are just waiting for you to stumble and fall. So Paul had had these Jewish people that were following following him around, fellow Jews who were zealous for the law, who didn't believe in Jesus. And so they're also in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost as well. And they see Paul there and they begin to say, we're going to stir up some trouble for Paul. This stops right here and now. We're going to make sure that Paul gets in trouble. Take a look at verses uh, 27 through 36 of Acts 21. And we see how Paul's trouble begins. It says, now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying, Men of Israel, this man teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled the holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with them in the city, whom they supposed Paul brought into the temple. Can I just stop right there? None of this is true. Okay, so this crowd's kind of getting together, and these, these few men are getting together. And says, this is what Paul's doing. He's, he's teaching people not to follow the traditions of Moses. He's bringing uh, non-Jews into the temple, and if you brought those people into the temple, they defiled the temple, and they're saying things that aren't true to stir up the crowd and stir up the people. Verse 30, and all the city was disturbed, and all the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. Now as we were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison at all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Can I stop there for a minute? They were beating Paul, okay? So here's the apostle. Here's the man full of the Holy Ghost. Here's the man that, that planted churches, who wrote three-quarters of the New Testament, who was, it was uh, doctrinally solid, who loved God and saw God, God use him to raise the dead and perform miracles, and they're beating the daylights out of this guy outside the temple. But when the soldiers came, they stopped. Verse 33, Then the commander came near to him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and asked who he was and what he had done. And some of the multitude cried one thing and some cried another so that he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult. And he commanded them to be taken into the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the people followed after, crying out, away with him. Think about this. Paul was beaten so badly that the soldiers had to carry him up into the barracks because he had experienced such difficulty. There's nothing worse than a mob mentality. It's thoughtless, reckless, and easily incited to anger. People hear something, it gets blown out of proportion, and all of a sudden everyone's rioting. Paul is on his way to the temple, and his companions are Jewish. Paul just completed a ritual of purification so they could even go into the temple. Now, if you brought someone that was non-Jewish into the temple, there were actually warning signs that said, if you go beyond here and you're not a Jew, then you, you will be under the penalty of death. And many times the Roman soldiers left things alone. They allowed the mob to, if they needed to, If they had to, they would carry out their own justice and put someone to death right there on the spot. 
And so it was a dangerous thing. But Paul's not doing any of that. Paul did not uh, in any way, shape, or form uh, teach against the teachings of, of Moses to the Jewish people. He didn't bring Gentiles into the temple. But someone shouted, this is what Paul's doing. We got to do something about it. Are you going to let this guy do something about this? Are you going to let this guy live? And people were like, well, absolutely not. That should not be happening at all, regardless of the fact whether it was true or not. It didn't matter. A rumor became a riot, and people were stirred up against him, so much so that there was fighting, and they were beating him, and they were looking to seek for his death. And such as it is oftentimes is that when things finally got broken up and the commander comes down, which, by the way, if you have the Roman commander coming down with centurions, it's pretty bad. It's that bad that the riot has gotten to a point that it's spilling out into the street. There's a huge commotion. There's a large crowd. And finally, the commander of the garrisons made known of it, and they send somebody down. They send a detachment down, and they basically rescue Paul from this, this angry mob. And when the commander asked, well, what happened here? Nobody knew. Some were yelling one thing, some were yelling another, but no one could ascertain the truth. And that's how it is when there's rumors. That's how it is when there's misunderstandings and misinterpretation. Because no one really knows what's going on. They just know they're mad as anything, and they're not going to take it anymore. How many times have you seen people, they're just mad. And you don't even know, they don't even know why they're mad. And the reason that they're mad, when you talk to them, they're like, that actually didn't happen that way. Not at all. But it doesn't matter to them because, like, they're mad, and that's all they can think about at that moment. So there are times where people get worked up over nothing, where the commander had to say, well, what happened here? And no one really knew. And he couldn't even determine what the truth was. Can I just tell you today, we live in a culture and a world where everything that you're watching on TV, everything that you're seeing on social media is meant to get you angry. Outraged, upset, motivated, doing something like that, regardless of whether it's true or not. And we as Christians have to be careful about knowing what is actually true as opposed to what isn't. Don't be incited just because of what you see. Please understand that when you're misunderstood, people make stuff up. They made stuff up about Paul that wasn't true. They made assumptions about you, him. And there are times where people will do that to do harm to your character and do harm to your, you as a person. And the problem is when we hear these sorts of things, when people say these sorts of things, that many times people just jump to a conclusion and have already made up their mind about that individual. And they can't tell the difference between truth and fiction. How about it get for Paul? Well, let's continue on. Acts 21, verses 37 through 40. It says, Then as they were about to be led to the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? And he replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? And Paul said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you to let me speak to the people. So when he had given permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hands to the people, and there was great silence, and he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. Talk about mistaken identity. They arrest Paul. No one knows why, what the riot's happening here for. They just realize that there's a bunch of people that want to kill somebody, and they grab this. So the, the, the Romans, they take this guy prisoner. They take Paul prisoner, and they bring him to the barracks. And Paul speaks to them in Greek, which kind of shocks them because they're not 
used to having a Jew that speaks Greek. And he says, and he says you know, can I speak to you? And they said, wait, wait a minute, aren't you the Egyptian that was stirring up trouble some time ago? Didn't you, like, re- lead a revolt of, like, 4,000 people? And he goes, no, nah, man, that's not me. That's somebody else. I'm not Egyptian. I'm Jewish. I'm from the city of Tarsus. And that's how it goes sometimes. That, like, people mi- will misunderstand and misinterpret things. When they don't know the real you, they'll say, well, that person's like this. They're this way. They're a bigot. They're a racist. They're selfish. Whatever the case might be, they'll say different things about you, not knowing you as a person. But it's only in the conversations that we have do we clear up the mess. It's only in the dialogue that we have with people do we hope to fix things. Now, I want you to notice something here is that Paul has just come out of a a serious situation where he was almost killed, where many people were just pulling at him from different sides. They were hitting him. They were beating him. It says that Paul needed to be carried up to the barracks because of the violence of the crowd. And Paul says, instead of Paul going, you know what, thank God that you guys were here. Like, take me to a secure location. You know, get me out of this place. Most of us would go like, you know, if I just got out of a riot, I'd be like, I'm done with these folks. I'm moving on. Like, take me somewhere else. But Paul says, I want to speak to the people. He wants to speak to the people that just created violence on him. He wants to speak to the crowd that just almost killed him. Why? Because God had put in his heart compassion. Because he knew that what they were assuming about him was wrong. And Paul didn't run away from confrontation. Paul didn't hide behind the police or the Roman soldiers or the government or behind the fact that I don't want to confront somebody. Can I challenge you today that we as Christians don't always do a good job with confrontation? We don't. Sometimes we, we handle it like, we handle it, <laughs> and I have to laugh at this because sometimes we just handle it like, uh, we become aggressive because we want to be dominant. We want to be like, show ourselves to be the alpha in some situations. We're saying like, I'm going I'm to confront them and I'll give them a piece of my mind, never mind the fact that you should really keep that piece of your mind because you don't have much to work with anyway sometimes. <laughs> Whenever I says, I'm going to give you a piece of my mind, they ultimately regret it. So I say that facetiously, right? I'm going to give you a piece of my mind, and you just sit here and listen to it. And we handle that poorly because we come out strong and confrontational. And there are many times that we're angry about things that the person doesn't even realize that they're angry about. And if we actually just asked questions and tried to understand, maybe it would help us ratchet it down a little bit. So either we come off really aggressive or we just avoid won't text, won't pick up the phone, won't talk to anybody, hides behind other people, but we are more than happy to whisper to somebody about how much we don't like that person, or how much we don't like that boss, that leader, that coworker, you know, that spouse, that family member. We'll talk to each other about that. But oh, hi, how are you? Do you understand what I'm saying? Is that we've got to do a better job at that when there is misunderstanding when there is confrontation, that when we do so, we do so in a way that like, we get out ahead of it. And say, I know this is the way it looks, and this is the way it sounds, but let's deal with what's happening here. When it comes to misunderstanding and misinterpreting, uh, people will fill in the blanks if you don't, and they'll spread false rumors. So what do we do when people misinterpret you? Write these things down. These will be helpful to you. Number one, first and foremost, speak up. And speak the truth. Speak up and speak the truth. Be honest about what you've done and what you haven't done. 
Sometimes we're really good about speaking about what we haven't done, but not being fully forthright about what we have done. Anytime we tend to confront somebody, we leave out the, the unflattering parts, don't we? We leave out the parts that like we, how we actually threw gasoline on the fire in the first place. There are times where we don't exactly give all the details, and we really should. So when we are finding ourselves in a situation like that, when they misinterpret you, speak up and speak the truth. Don't avoid confrontation or explode into confrontation. Face it head on. Share honestly and truthfully what you have and haven't done so that misconceptions can be cleared up. Don't bend the truth. Don't lie to cover things. If you did something wrong, have the sense to have that mea culpa moment that said, yeah, I didn't do, yeah, I made some mistakes along the way, and here's where I was wrong, but here is what I intend to do about it now. Admit it and accept the consequences. Do so, speak up when you need to. Many times we don't face, when we face opposition, we don't do anything about it. We say that's just the way it is, but we have a part in doing something and changing the misconception. So speak up and speak the truth. Secondly, instead of retaliating, reiterate what you're about. Paul didn't rebuke or retaliate the crowd. Okay, he gets up in front of people and says, I would really like to speak to the people. And he doesn't, you know, he doesn't get up there now. He's got the protection of Roman soldiers and everybody else with him. And he couldn't get up on the stage and be like, yeah, you know what? God's judgment's coming on you because you struck God's anointed. And you did this to me. And mark my words, God's going to do harm to you. He did not retaliate. He didn't call them names. He didn't call down judgment on them. He didn't rebuke them. He came and he reiterated what he was about. There are times where when we experience difficulty, when we experience trouble and trials, our tendency is like, you do me wrong, I will do you worse wrong. If you do something to me, I'm going to do something back to you. We tend to retaliate. But if we just simply took the time to reiterate, that's not what I'm about. I know it came across this way, but that's not me and that's not who I am. Here's who I am. And lay out what you're about. Clearly and concisely. He says to him, like, listen, I was just like one of you. I was zealous for the law too, but this is where I'm at now. I believe in Jesus now, and I follow the Lord now because of it. It's an unexpected way of the way we handle things that will change hearts and minds. People are expecting retaliation. People are expecting an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But when you come at it with the grace and the love of God at work through your life, it will surprise people. It will change hearts. It will change minds. Thirdly, trust God to be your defender. Yeah, but pastor, I need to do something about this. Yeah, speak up about it. Stand what you're, be clear about what you stand for. But when it comes to taking matters into our own hands and giving violence for violence and doing all these sort of things, God won't be with you in that. But if you are truthful, if you stand for righteousness, if you do the right thing, God will always see justice to your cause. Even when you're falsely accused, even when people lie about you. I've seen it time and time again, not only in my life, but in the lives of others, that when you choose to say, you know, God is my defender, then God will see justice to your cause. And he will bring about deliverance through the most unlikely of places. That there will be times where there will be non-Christians that come to your defense. 
There will be people that come to your aid and help you out in ways that you couldn't have ever expected or imagined for that to happen. Why? Because God will bring a way to help you out when you're stuck in trouble. If you handle things the right way, if you do things the right way, God will see justice to your cause. Why don't we see justice? Because a lot of times we take matters into our own hands. The truth is, though, if we do what's right, we go through the channels and we say, you know what, here I am, this is who I am, and this is what I'm about. And we say, God, you're my judge. Lord, you come to my defense. We sometimes don't do that. But when we do, God brings protection and deliverance and defense. Notice that it was a Roman soldier that saved Paul. Who would have thought that ever would have happened? Think about it this way. No one from the Jewish culture saved Paul, but Paul, a Jew, was saved by the Romans and brought to safety. God will bring deliverers and defenders to you out of the most unlikely places when you handle things the right way. When troubles and trials come, use it as an opportunity to share your testimony. So Paul gets up, he says, okay, I want to talk to the people. And all the people that just tried to beat him and tried to put him in prison, that tried to kill him, all the people that he uh, just encountered this great difficulty with, he says, I want to talk to them. And he begins to use it as an opportunity to share a testimony. Think about it this way. It's like a testimony is an opportunity to share. An opportunity for God to use you in a moment of weakness and a moment of difficulty. You have an opportunity to share your story with them. As one writer aptly put, that there are three elements of Paul's testimony. We can write these things down. Number one, Paul speaks of his conduct before he was saved. He speaks about the kind of guy he was before he became a Christian. And he said in verse 3, he says, I'm indeed a Jew. I was born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but was brought up in the city under the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous towards God as you are today. And I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains everyone who was there to Jerusalem to be punished. There's no greater testimony than to talk about where you were beforehand. Paul says, like, I used to be like you. Like the zeal that you have for the law right now, I was more zealous than all of you. I was so zealous for the traditions of my ancestors that I even got letters from the chief priests so that I could go seize people that were Christians, take them to jail, put them to death even. That's how zealous I was for it. He says, it was before I was saved, this is the way I used to be. And there's no greater testimony to somebody to say, you know, I used to be like this. I'm like this now. Especially if your change was dramatic. If you used to be filled with anxiety, and now you're filled with peace. If you used to be an alcoholic, and now you're sober. If you used to be someone who was abusive verbally and physically, and now you're a gentle and kind person. If you're a person that used to swear and do all kinds of things, and now everything that comes out of your mouth is peaceful and gentle. People will say, what happened there? What happened in your life that changed you so much? And there's no more powerful testimony to say, I used to be like that. Isn't that what you see on television all the time? Especially when it comes to weight loss commercials, right? You see, I used to be fast, but now I'm thin. 
Like, wow, I want to be like that guy, right? We see the change and the transformation. Part of your life and walk with God is that there should be a point in your life where you should say, I was this way, but I'm different now. Because God's power at work in your life brings about change. If you can look back on your life and say, like, I'm pretty much the same, then God's power has not been at work to the full degree that it needs to be in order for you to be able to call yourself a Christian. You need to say, like, I'm different now because God's working in me. And you can point to things. And sometimes God will work in you, and you won't even see it, but other family members will say, like, man, what's with you? Why do you not do things anymore? Why do you not get mad when we talk about politics at the table anymore? Why is it that you don't, these things don't happen anymore? The reason why, you could say, and in those moments, sometimes we're inclined not to say anything. But can I challenge you today that that's an opportunity. That's a door that someone just kicked open for you. And when they say, okay, well, why is it this way? Well, I'm just a nice person now. Uh, I just, I don't get into that anymore. No, it's Jesus. The answer is Jesus. Because when you do that, it grants, gives weight to the story of what God's done in your life. And when you take those moments and the opportunity to do so, people say, wow, God changed your life in that way? Yes, he did. That's the way I used to be, but I'm different now because of the Lord. So that's the first thing. Secondly, he spoke about his conversion. He spoke about what happened. Verse 6, it says, Now as it happened, I journeyed and came near Damascus. It was about noon, and a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground, hearing a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth. I'm the one you're persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, go, arise and go to Damascus, and there you'll be told all the things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. And then a certain Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. And he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. And you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Paul takes a moment and says, here's my story. It's a really weird one. I'm on my way to Damascus, and as I'm riding on this road, a bright light hits me. In the middle of the noonday, this bright light shines, and I'm blinded. Not blinded like I can't temporarily see. I'm knocked to the ground, and I literally can't see. And I hear a voice from heaven, and it, and it's, you know, it says, Paul, why, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you you're putting me through, through such pain? And it's saying, well, who are you? I can't even see who you are. It says, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. Now keep in mind, Paul was dragging away Christians and putting them in prison and beating them and putting them to death. But the Lord said, it's me that you're hurting by doing this. Paul gets up from the ground. He can't see. And he says, what do I need to do, Lord? He says, go into Damascus. And he's so blind that he had to be led by the hand by his companions to be able to go into Damascus. And he sat there and he waited until someone would come. And God sent somebody. Aren't you thankful for the people that God sent into your life 
to make a difference. That someone was obedient. That someone was willing to put their neck out there for someone who was difficult, hard, challenging. The personality wasn't great. Maybe that you were, had some hang-ups in your life. Aren't you thankful that someone in your life came along and said, hey, can I tell you about Jesus for a minute? And changed your life for the better. You're sitting here today because someone took the time to put their neck out and said, you know what, there's a chance here I could get into trouble. There's a chance here they could, they could uh, yell at me and they could call me names. Or there's a chance here they could get violent with me. Or there's a chance I could, that friendship could end forever. But aren't you thankful that somebody, God sent someone into your life that cared about you enough, that was obedient enough to the voice of the Lord so that you were actually able to be saved and be the Christian that you are today. He says, I was there, and then this man, Ananias, came, and he prayed for me, and immediately my blindness was gone, and I could see. And then he began to speak to me and tell me how God had a plan for my life, and that why should you wait any longer but choose to follow Jesus, be baptized in water, and follow after the Lord. He talks about his conversion, the day, the date, the time, all the details. Do you have that in your inventory? Do you have that as part of your story? That's my question to you. Do you even, can people even, when people say like, when did you become a Christian? You're like, ah, I've always kind of been at church. I've always kind of believed in God. Or can you say, you know, I remember the day and the time. I remember where I was. I remember the church that I was. I remember the service. I remember who was speaking. I remember what I was feeling and what I was experiencing. And then they could tell you like, I know that something happened there. I know that I gave my heart to the Lord that day. I know that I was different from that point onward. You should be able to have a, t- a date, time, place, etc. That's your birthday as a Christian right there. And if you don't have that, you say, well, why don't I have that? And you could talk to me later. And you know what? Let's lead you into that place where you could say, today, I literally became a Christian because I accepted Jesus as Savior. And it's not something about just going to church and doing good things and being involved in charity. It's about like, that you worship God in such a way that everything that you do gets filtered through his plan for you. That he is the most important figure in your life. The Lord, and that's like family's right there. You understand what I'm saying? But the Lord guides and directs our steps. So he talks about his conversion. And then lastly, he talks about his commission, verses 14 and 15 and 21. He talks about how God has sent him to the Gentiles and it's, told him to to share all the things that God has put on his heart and his life and all the things that he he has seen and that God was going to use him in mighty ways, that he was going to heal the sick and then he was going to preach and people would listen and be converted. He would raise the dead. All these things would happen in his life. It says, you know, I'm called to the Gentiles too and the people didn't like that. Can I just share that with you too? That oftentimes that when you share with people they may not always like what you have to say. When you speak to clear up miscommunications and misinterpretations, please understand that there are some people who go, oh, that's great, and they believe, and there's others who go, I still don't like you, (laughs) like at all. But remember, just like Paul said, okay, Paul was a, a very skilled speaker. He was very convincing. People believed. Churches were started. People were converted. People were healed. And Paul was very persuasive, but yet there were still people that didn't like him and still wanted to see him dead. (laughs) And that's amazing to think about when you think about it because we don't often think of the other side of our calling to follow God. But God called 
Paul to be a witness. And he calls us to be witnesses too. He didn't call us to be the one that actually saves people. He only called us to testify of what we've seen and heard. And it's up to the listener to believe and to judge whether they believe or not. So can I encourage you in this? Is that as we are living this life today, as we are going through things, you're going to be misunderstood as a Christian. People are going to call you things that you're not. You might even have friends and family members who think you're a certain way because you vote a certain way or because you stand by certain values and standards. And they'll call you names that have no basis or merit whatsoever because they don't really know you and what you're about. What do we do? We speak and we clear things up. Lovingly, graciously, kindly. And we say, this is the way it is. And there are people that are still not going to necessarily listen or like you. But our job is just to be a witness. It's up to God to be able to change the hearts and the minds of people. Do you believe that today? My challenge for you is this. Be the kind of person that speaks up and speaks the truth. Be the kind of person that makes things clear when they're not. Don't run from confrontation, but use it as an opportunity to be able to share Jesus in some way. God can and will use you. Can we pray today? Heavenly Father, I just thank you today that you are the one who guides and directs our steps. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today that are with me. They love you, they serve you, they want to do what's right in your sight. But many times there's people that are critical of them, that talk about them behind their backs, who say terrible things about them, who believe things about them that aren't true. And those things hurt, and they're difficult to to kind of hear and experience. But I pray today, Lord God, that they would love even those that try to hurt them. Just as Paul wanted to speak to this crowd that had just done him great violence and disservice, Lord, I pray that we would have compassion on even our enemies. And that, Lord, that you would give them the words to say so that they would be your witnesses to speak up for themselves and speak up for the truth. May they walk with integrity in such a way that no one would be able to say anything against them. Lord, may their life make a difference. May their testimony exalt you. And may people know who Jesus is because of the difference that you made in their lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.